He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, normally, I would follow up this statement of our faith, this statement of fact rooted in the reality of Jesus' resurrection by saying to you, Happy Easter, not only because it's appropriate to say that, but also because that is truly my heartfelt prayer, my hope for each and every one of you. But I'm not going to do that just yet. And I'll explain why in just a second. Right now, though, I want to ask you a question. And I want to ask everyone in the room, if you will, kind of go with me back in time for some of us, for some of us like me, maybe way back in time. But I want you to think about Easter morning, Easter egg hunts, your Easter basket, and I ask this question. What is your favorite Easter candy? What is your favorite Easter candy? Now, the numbers aren't in yet for 2023, but we know that last year, number one with a bullet was Reese's Peanut Butter Eggs. How many Reese's people do we have in the house? Okay, that's great. It's exciting. You know, one of the great things about Easter is you can be at church and still be wrong. Um, that's, that's fine. What about number five? How, do we have any Cadbury cream egg people in the room? Yeah. You're people who wish you could go to England for Easter. I understand. Yes, I'll have a Cadbury cream egg and a spot of tea. Number eight shocked me. It shocked me, not that it was at number eight, but that it was even in the top 25. Number eight, most popular Easter candy last year were Peeps Marshmallow Chicks. How many Peeps Peeps do we have in the room? Okay, I, I gotta tell you, I love you. I don't get it. I think all of us, because of nostalgia or for whatever reason, we kind of lower our candy standards at Easter. And Peeps may be the most glaring example of this. You know, when I was thinking about my own personal favorite, my earliest memory of Easter, and this is not the most profound thing that I'll say today, hopefully, but my most profound, my earliest Easter memory has to do with the chocolate bunny that was in my Easter basket. How many of y'all remember the chocolate bunny from Easter, right? Well, I still remember this from when I was growing up and I, I, the, my earliest memory is going, an entire chunk of chocolate in the shape of a bunny. I was so ecstatic about that. But then, if you fast forward, I don't know if it was two or three or four years after my earliest memory, but there came a time where I quit even digging the chocolate bunny out of my Easter basket. Some of you know where this is going. I quit taking it out because I remember being so disappointed in the chocolate bunny. And you know why I was disappointed, right? It's hollow. I mean, it's just a thin candy shell of a veneer of what it presents itself to be. It is the most bitter disappointment that I've ever experienced in candy. Now, 
I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them with a smile on your face and like you really mean it, Happy Easter. Easter. Outstanding. That was really well done. Well, I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for saying that. And the reason I thank you for saying that is that you who just wished your neighbor Happy Easter just preached the two-word introduction to this Easter sermon. So thank you for helping me out a little bit. Happy Easter. I say it is the introduction to the sermon because of this. Happiness is the heart of Easter. Happiness is the heart of Easter. And, by the way, Easter is the heart of happiness. Now, some of us might kind of flinch a little bit from both of those statements, but you may flinch for different reasons. Some of us may flinch from the first part of it, like, whoa, 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 Mac, I I don't know if, to be honest, it sounds a little frivolous, a little flippant to so closely connect happiness and Easter. Surely, Easter is about much more than just happiness, and I would agree with you to the extent that we're talking about that kind of thin candy shell veneer of happiness. But when you read the Bible, you you see that scripture uses words like happy and joyful and celebrating and exultant and cheerful and delighted over and over and over and over again. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is my strength. Scripture does not distinguish between joy and happiness like we do. As a matter of fact, I have done that before. I I want you to know, I have stood right here and said, happiness depends on what happens, but joy transcends our troubles. And I think I was wrong. I I think I was wrong because happiness really does go to the core of who we are as human beings. We, We want to be happy. If I were to give you the choice, would you like to be happy or unhappy? How many of you want to be happy? Great. I think if you want to be unhappy, we can get you the name of a great counselor. We all strive and desire happiness. Our our desire for happiness is not the problem. The, The definition of happiness, what we really seek and yearn for in this life is, I think, Happiness. As parents, almost every decision we make as a parent is based upon the premise that we want to raise happy children to be happy adults, and, and that's, that's good as far as it goes, but the second part of that statement that I just made, that Easter is the heart of happiness, some of us may flinch from that a little bit. You may think, whoa, 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 Mac, surely you wouldn't paint all of humanity with such a broad brush as to say that Happiness in every human heart depends on Easter. And the reality is that that is exactly the claim of Easter, that we need Easter. Specifically, we need Jesus Christ for that kind of soul deep down in your bones, no matter what kind of happiness. Now, we're not talking about a thin veneer of happiness, We're talking about the kind of happiness that carries us through difficult times. We're talking about that kind of God-given 
happiness and joy that supersedes our struggles and transcends our troubles. It's not some pie-in-the-sky, Pollyanna kind of denial. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said, in this world you will have many troubles, but take heart. He said, because I have overcome the world. That is Easter. So we acknowledge that hard things happen, bad things happen, we hurt, we grieve. You only have to be alive about 15 minutes before you've experienced disappointment. I mean, what, what is the first thing that any baby communicates when they're born into this world? It's not, glad to be here. <laughs> when children are born into the world, the first thing they do, they come into this cold, really bright world out of their safety and warmth of their mother's womb, and, and, and somebody pops them on the backside to get them breathing. It's a brutal entry. And that theme kind of carries through life a lot of times, doesn't it? So it, it doesn't deny the fact of hurt. Rather, it embraces the reality of it through the hope of Easter. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 15 and 16, Jesus is making his final approach to the cross. And as he's approaching the cross, he is preparing his closest followers and friends for what they are about to go through as they watch what he is about to go through. And in John chapter 15, he says something so fascinating. Jesus says in John 15, verses 9 through 11, he says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Now turn to your other neighbor who is your second choice on this Easter Sunday morning <laughs> and tell that neighbor, get your joy on. You know, as I thought about this passage and this moment in the life of Christ, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I were facing what Jesus was facing, his betrayal, his trial in a kangaroo court for crimes that he never committed, and then the agonizing death on a Roman cross, I'm not sure that joy would have been in my outline. And, and I'm pretty sure if I were to be completely candid with myself and with you, your joy sure wouldn't be on the agenda. But this is the heart of Jesus. He is love. Even when he is about to face the most devastating, the darkest night of the soul that any human being has ever known, he's worried about us. He's thinking about you by name. And he says, listen, I, I want you to remain in my love no matter what. I want your joy to be full. Don't let go of hope. Yeah. It's going to be a tough, tough three days. But you see, Jesus knew what was on the other side. You and I, with the benefit and the blessing of hindsight, we now know what was on the other side. 
But it wasn't just Jesus' followers that he wanted to cling to the hope and the promise of joy. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us something fascinating about Jesus himself. In Hebrews 12, the Bible says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is to be our true north in everything that we do. He is the pioneer, the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross. Why? Because he knew the joy on the other side. He knew the pain of Friday afternoon would give way to the joy of Sunday morning. He knew that Easter would happen, and it was that joy that carried Christ through the crisis of the crucifixion. It was that joy that every one of us has in our lives, that desire for that joy. I mean, think about every decision that you make in this world, every decision that I make. Somewhere probably in the top five on our list of criteria for what decision we'll make, happiness is going to pop up when you... Uh, when you decide who you're going to date, you base that on how happy you are when you're around them. When you think about, do I go to college? Do I not go to college? What do I want to study? What do I want to do? How much money do I need to make? We think about happiness. We think about fulfillment. We think about enjoying this life that God has given us. That is not in and of itself a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it's that desire for happiness for joy that ultimately points us to a personal relationship with Christ. The Bible uses words like happiness and cheerfulness and delight and joy more than 2,700 times in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, when Jesus says, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed, blessed, blessed. That word blessed in the original Greek is translated when it's used as an adjective like Jesus is using it here, either as blessed, meaning enjoying the favor of God, and happy. When you enjoy the favor of God, you experience the happiness that you ultimately, that I ultimately crave and am longing for. The problem is not in our drive for happiness. The problem is not just in, in our definition of happiness. The problem is in the vehicles that we use to get there. Any vehicle other than God will bring us to a deep, deep disappointment and frustration. As a matter of fact, that's why in the next few weeks as a church, we're beginning a teaching series next week called The God of happy. Because a lot of times we settle for little g God, idols of happiness, whereas God in his majesty, his authority, his love and his grace is the only source of happiness that there is. You see, a lot of times we settle for something less than that because it's easier, because it's more tangible, it's quicker, it's instant gratification a lot of times. C.S. Lewis wrote this about that very thing. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink 
and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Like a child making mud pies in a slum. I got to tell you, when I read that, I get it. I, I, I have made some mud pies in my life. To me, mud pies kind of, it's like hollow bunnies, really. It's, the, it's the, the things that we settle for that never bring us the happiness that we hope. They, they are that thin candy shell veneer that promises so much more that it never delivers. It is only in a relationship with Christ that meaning and power and peace and happiness is infused into every part of our lives. It is because of Christ that all of those other things that we settle for can, in fact, have meaning and power and peace and happiness. But if we go after those things in and of themselves, we will never get there. It just, it just doesn't work. And that is where Easter comes into the picture. That is where Jesus inserts himself into our story because these mud pies, these hollow chocolate bunnies are a part of the human condition. This has been our challenge ever since Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, Eve is tempted to eat of the one tree that God said leave alone. The one thing Satan tempts Eve. And he starts with a question. He goes, now did God really say you would die if you ate of that tree? And Eve, who by the way, is in the Garden of Eden by herself. We don't know where Adam was. He's over there like working in the garage, doing something completely worthless. And Eve is here face-to-face -face spiritual warfare with Satan himself. And Eve answers correctly the first question. She goes, no, God did in fact say, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then the great deceiver said, no, 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 God's holding out on you. If you will taste of this fruit, then God knows that you will be like him. That's, he's holding out on you. This is the man keeping you down. And ever since then, we have been tempted to buy the lie that we can be like God, that we can be little g gods of our own, charting our own course, determining our own destinies. And it never, ever works. It always results in brokenness. It always results in estrangement because sin is poison. Sin is an absolute poison and toxin to the human soul. And that is why Jesus accomplished what he accomplished in Easter. You see, Jesus Christ went to the cross in your place and in my place. And the Bible says he became our sin. The son of God who never did anything wrong took on himself the sins of the world. That's you. That's me. And because he became our sin, he paid the penalty of our sin, which is death. Not only the agonizing, asphyxiating death of a Roman cross, 
but also the soul-deep, agonizing death of estrangement from God the Father. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the Bible says that they hid from God. Sin always takes us away from the God who gave us life, the God who loves us perfectly and unconditionally. Jesus himself experienced that. It's why he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, the God who loves unconditionally and perfectly refused to relax his standards of righteousness. He did not wink at sin. He allowed his son to take the full weight of my sin and your sin, and he died. And Friday afternoon turned into Friday night, which became Saturday morning. I think a lot of times we forget about Saturday. We think about Good Friday and we think about Easter morning, but Saturday, Saturday is where a lot of uncertainty lies. Saturday, you know that Jesus' disciples were thinking about everything he had said to them leading up to Friday afternoon. But in that moment on Saturday, they didn't know. They didn't know. They hoped, but they didn't know. And Saturday turned into Saturday night. And Saturday night gave way to Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Now, his death is irrefutable. You cannot intelligently argue whether or not Jesus died on a Roman cross. We know it from the biblical account. We know it from extra biblical accounts. Josephus was a Roman historian who attested to the death of Jesus of Nazareth on a cross in or around 30 AD. That, that is beyond debate, whether or not it actually happened. But he rose from the dead, and it's important that we all remember. When we say he rose from the dead, this is not a religious metaphor. It's not a, it's not a spiritual allegory that we tell ourselves to feel better about our faith. It is a documented historical fact. More than 500 people saw Jesus after he was crucified. The tomb was empty. Some people have put forth the swoon theory that somehow Jesus really just passed out on that Roman cross, that he passed out from pain and exhaustion and then was laid in the tomb and since he wasn't really dead, somehow through a conspiracy that defeated the greatest empire on the planet at that time, he was secreted away from Jerusalem. Well, the swoon theory doesn't hold any intellectual water at all. Because you see, the Roman Empire studied how to kill people. Roman centurions were really, really good at this. And if your job was to crucify people as a Roman centurion, and you failed to kill them dead, you were killed. So they were really, really good at it. Jesus died on the cross. But on that Easter Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead with the promise of new life for anyone who would follow him. For God so loved the world. Well, 
for God so loved you that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, so that, so that if you would choose to believe in him, to follow him, to walk with him, then you would never perish, but you would have eternal life. Now, eternal life takes its fullest form when we pass from this life. In this life, we're still in process. We are still very much living in a fallen world. But the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, he will wipe away every tear of those who have believed in him, that he will, in fact, right every wrong that has ever been suffered in this world. And in that moment, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He will make everything right. J.R.R. Tolkien was a friend of C.S. Lewis's. And Tolkien wrote this about the return of Christ connected to the resurrection. He says, the birth Death and resurrection of Jesus means that one day, one day, everything sad will come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Somehow in, in his sovereignty, in his perfect authority and love, everything broken will be made whole. This is the promise of Easter. Psalm chapter 37, verse 4, tells us how we get there. Psalm 37, 4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight. That's a great word. Say the word delight. Delight. You can't say it without smiling. Beauty, delight. It just doesn't work. But to delight ourselves in God, for some people that may be just a radical thought. Maybe you grew up with a, with a picture of God as, as strictly and only judgmental, mean-spirited, kind of with a lightning bolt ready to zap anybody having fun on earth. That's not the God of the Bible. Scripture tells us to delight in the Lord and he will give us the desires of our heart. That desire for happiness, that desire for joy is ultimately fulfilled only in Christ. So to delight in God means that, it means that I get to know him, that I love him. It's not only knowing about him, but it is knowing him personally and intimately now, I have to know some things about him if I'm going to know him, but it's not just knowing about God. It's knowing him and it's loving him. It's, it's, it's living in relationship with him and his people. It's, it's where you begin not just going to church because it's Christmas or Easter or Mother's Day, but it's where you begin actually being the church and you, you are the body of Christ. It, it is taking delight in God and the things of God that makes everything else mud pies and hollow bunnies. In John chapter 16, 
Jesus said something to his followers again as he's preparing them for his crucifixion. He said this. He said, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. No one will take away your joy in the Lord. No one will be able to take away your joy when it comes from God. And that is why we can say that happiness is the heart of Easter and Easter is the heart of happiness. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And with nobody moving or causing any kind of a disruption or distraction of any kind, please, I want to just make sure on this happy Easter morning, if you have never taken hold of a relationship with Christ, if you've never personally and definitively committed your life to him, why not right now? Why not right now make this your first real happy Easter? If that's you, then it's, it's a prayer of commitment. It's a prayer of beginning this relationship, this journey, this walk with God. Silently, right where you're sitting, just pray from your heart to God. Say something like this in your own words. Just silently say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. And so I confess my sin to you, holding nothing back so that I can receive, I can take hold of your amazing grace. Jesus, I believe that you died for me and that you rose from the dead for me. And I accept. And in exchange for your life, I give you mine. And I will follow you from this moment forward. Jesus, you are my Savior. You are my Lord. And I pray this prayer, Jesus, in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for a moment. If that was your prayer, then this is the biggest moment of your life. And as a, as a church, as a family of faith with you, we're so excited with you and for you. We want to help with the moments that follow from this beginning. And we'll explain how to do that in just a second. But right now, as our heads are bowed and eyes are closed for just another moment, if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand up high over your head for a moment. And know that your hand in the air is just a, a physical statement of the spiritual commitment that you just made, and it's real. And it's forever. And as a church, we're so excited for you. 
We're just honored to be in the room where it happened with you or in the online connection with you where it happened. And our family tradition around here is you can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together and tell you welcome home. Welcome home.